the first thing in his mind to do was to open up his hand uh, and, and his house and and to give what he had rather than kind of like lament what he didn't have. And so that that kind of sentiment was was with us throughout so much of the trip of people just opening up their homes at the sight of a stranger. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 141, Spices and Spandex with Tom Perkins. Welcome back to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. On with me today is Tom Perkins. Tom and his friend Matt decided in a pub one night to ride their bikes 20,000 kilometers from London, England to Cape Town, South Africa. Over 500 days, they met some amazing people and experienced a large variety of the local cuisine. Tom's new cookbook, Spices and Spandex, showcases many of these dishes along with the stories behind them. So first of all, Tom, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thank you. <laughs> and I have to laugh because I had to do this part out, but I called Tom Matt. So uh, yeah, that's why we're all laughing about this. So anyway, Tom, <laughs> I'm going to yeah, do it through yeah, the whole I'm show. Here, I'm here. It's really good to have you. Um, so Thank first you. of all, give us a little bit of a background on you and your your upbringing. Were you an adventurous person? What really, what launched you into wanting to do such a, a long trip like this? Um, yeah, yeah. I think as a, as a, as a kid, I was always trying to know what was around the corner and, and, and spent a, a childhood kind of outdoors with, with my, with my siblings and with my mates. And, um, and I've always wanted to, to explore. And I've also been very, very lucky to have a family that will allow me to explore. So, um, I think that that's a big part of, of doing trips like this and, and kind of having that desire to, to go and, and do things slightly differently. It's having those loved ones that kind of go, yeah, even though your idea might sound a bit crazy, we'll back you wholeheartedly. Um, and so, yeah, I've always had this this itch that seems insatiable uh, and the desire to go and to travel and to explore and to kind of been shown that actually you don't really know much about anything until you go and experience it firsthand is something that I really like Um you know, to, to have. Um, and then, yeah, so it's always been a big, big desire to, to, um, to experience something that I haven't already experienced before. Um, and to be kind of blown away by, by the actualities of the places and the people and the cultures and and everything that you come across. So did you, was your family an adventurous family? Did you guys do a lot of travel as a kid or was this just something about individual curiosity that you kind of gathered or uh, obtained yourself? Yeah, I think we always did as a, as a family. We always always were were doing things slightly differently. We'd always be um, kind of out, outdoorsy. Uh, my parents did a lot of travel when they were were my age when I started the trip. So it's kind of early twenties. My dad would would sail boat, boats single handedly all around um, Greece, uh, and my mum was very and, and actually has in, in latter life kind of become very very adventurous in the way that she views the world and and her desire to, to constantly kind of go out and learn um, new things is 
is something that definitely rubbed off on, on me and, and on my siblings. Um, so we've been very fortunate to always have that support structure that, um, that will promote us in, in doing this, whether it's a big, big, long trip like this or whether it's the decision to, to go and live in different countries and to pursue different careers as well, um, that we've been very, very fortunate. I think you can't really do this without um, having the support of your kind of loved ones. That if we said to them, listen, I, I really want to do this and I'm passionate about this and I think that this is viable because of X, Y, and Z. If you can justify it to them, then they'll be like, yeah, whatever it takes, we will help you emotionally, physically, we will help you get through this. Uh, and a big, big part of, of this whole thing was also that, that they're kind of like, well, you've got to be financially self-supporting, you know, that if you can raise the money yourself, then this is your money to spend. Like we'll give you every other bit of support that we certainly can. But um, I think it's a big, big thing to that if you have an idea like this, to be able to follow it through on your own, um, that, that that sense of of being independent and not relying on anyone else is something that I've always been taught to to really value and to very much kind of prioritize in, in everything that I do. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been very, very lucky with the support structures that I've had. And I very much appreciate the fact that, that through them and because of them, I've been allowed to do what I have done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, the support is is just critical, you know, from your from your parents as a young person, and the that sense of accomplishment that you get after completing some of these outings and these longer and longer adventures is just it's amazing and addictive, of course. Yeah, I think it is. Once you do one, and it doesn't matter how big or, or small they are, if you get that sense of being out in the open, being like, right, I've got a goal, and my goal is to go from here to here, and I'm going to do it in this kind of way. If you set yourself that task, and then you then you do it and you achieve it, you're like, whoa, that was that was possible. Like, I didn't think that, that I could do that. And then your kind of ambition gets bigger, and then you're kind of, uh, you get a little bit, let's say, the sense of bravado gets gets to you a little bit and you go well i went from here to here last time what about if i go from here to here to even further and um and i guess that with every smaller trip it kind of gives validation to the next one that you want to do right so you also need to instill in people and in yourself the confidence that this thing can actually happen and that it is viable and and whether lots of people that kind of don't quite get your mindset and your ambition might in completely understandably initially be quite hesitant and i certainly found that on the on the, the big trip that i did that once you do the first one and they go oh you you actually can do that that is viable then the support becomes even more kind of entrenched and um and unquestioning and that's a really really cool thing that um you know you build up this sense of of, of self-confidence and confidence that other people have in you which i think is an important thing and completely understandable that a lot of these ideas um I kind of, if you like take a step back and you go, yeah, I'm just going to go and do this and I don't quite know how it's going to all work out and I've never done something like this before and I've got, you know, pretty much no qualifications to allow me to do this um, in terms of like, I don't know how to fix a bike and I don't know first aid very well and I don't speak this language and I don't have the right paperwork for X, Y and Z. But you know, if you if you show that passion and you show that commitment to something, then it's it is amazing how people very much get on your side and they back you, and that's really important. 
<laughs> yeah, I can see that. Well, and planning can uh, can hurt you. If you get too far into your, your planning, you may never get there. You know, you may try to engineer every little aspect of the trip. And, and yeah, I think, I think that's a big thing. Uh, yeah, I think there's a, <laughs> like a fine line between the two, right? And maybe on the first trip, we boarded very much on the side of the non-planning. And to be <laughs> honest, like it worked amazingly well because we had our goals, you know, and, and, and we weren't trying to emulate anything else. We weren't trying to copy somebody else's trip, but we had like a blueprint and it worked for us and I think that that's the most important thing that it doesn't matter like um, that what you're trying to achieve in relation to somebody else like you should never well unless that's your your goal and your and your motivation right is to break records and to do this like but we knew me and Matt knew kind of what motivated us and we knew what we were setting out to do and then we also were very open and honest to each other and to ourselves about like what we're kind of good at and what we're just not good at. Um, and so we didn't try and exceed kind of the level of our comfort and our skill set. So like, we knew that we wouldn't be able to like cycle the length of, of, of where we were going in record time because we're both pretty shitty cyclists and we weren't very <laughs> fit to start with and our equipment was shoddy and, and we were carrying way too much weight. So we were like, okay, so that's off the cards. Like we're not going to break records, but we never intended to. And that was kind of a nice thing that we were like, well, what actually are we intending to do? And I think that when you take a kind of a little bit of a step back and actually go, what are the most important things that I want to take in and take out of this trip? Um, then you will tailor something that very much suits your needs and also that is, is achievable. And I think that that's a really, really important thing um, to not set yourself outside of your comfort zone um, to an extent. You know, it's always really good. And, and with these trips, you always kind of want to be pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. But like take a step back and be I dare I say, and we missed this so often, but to be really pragmatic about what you can and can't do. Um, and then you can just, then, then so many other opportunities uh, kind of open up for you. Yeah, absolutely. You got to be honest with yourself. And I can, I can imagine going with another person and being open and honest with them really helps in the sense that you can say, look, this is not my strong suit. You're, I'm going to need your help getting through this. But on the other hand, you know, I, I have some strong points here. And if you don't, then, you know, I can help push you because you're, you're going to hit days. I mean, this is, you were out here doing this over 500 days and you're going to hit plenty of days where you just really don't want to get back to it the next day. I'm, I'm sure of it. So you can help each other get over those humps. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a really important point and um and doing i always think that, that doing a trip like this i mean and everyone's different you know it's lots of people love doing this on their own because they love that sense of being like up against it and and, and if i don't succeed then it's then it's down to me um and that gives them kind of real strength and motivation and this kind of dogged determinism. And, and a lot of people love that solitude as well. But for us, we, we just got really lucky, me and Matt, that we shared this vision together and we didn't have to compromise before we went away. And we had to compromise very little while we were away of kind of what our collective objectives were. Um, and yeah, but, you know, like we, we knew each other for, for years and years and, and we'd lived together for, you know, in digs at university for, for years. So we kind of, we, we knew each other very well. But until you put yourself in, in a situation where you are kind of day in, day out, wholly or, or, or vastly reliant on this other person, it, it's real, it's a real strain potentially on a relationship. And you get kind of, and it's looking back at it, it's quite, it's quite 
it's an easy thing to do, but it's also a really weak thing to do is that any problem you just project onto the other person and be like, <laughs> like, hang on, weren't you looking at the map? Why have we gone like 50 K down the wrong way? Like, this is your fault. This is your fault. Like not often do we say that to each other, but you know, like, there, there is that ability to, um, to project your problems onto the other person. Uh, and, and so to be like really, um, kind of self-discipline to be like no deal with it yourself like we're both here in the same position let's not kind of blame anyone else but also to be um very conscious that what you're both doing is like physically draining it's emotionally draining there's enough challenges per day and uh, to not be at each other's throat and you're both going through this at the same time like if you're feeling bad it, chances are that he's feeling bad as well so he doesn't need as you don't need each other to get on each other's back um and so once you get that realization that um you know like a shitty time shouldn't be projected onto the other person then you can very much see yourself as like working as this team and if you get that team um that little unit working nicely uh, and it takes a while to like build into that and to, and to get that dynamic quite right. But once you do, then you, um, you, you kind of have this, this very uh, strong understanding um, about what you're trying to do and, you know, what needs to be said and what doesn't need to be said and how to support each other in certain ways. And yeah, there were times on the trip, like really low times on the trip where if it wasn't for Matt, then, then you could easily, I could easily have just been like, oh, like, what are we doing this for? Why, why do we want to carry on? How can we carry on? And other times that were just like pure, pure joy. And you're like, well, I'm so glad that this guy's like, by my side to witness this view to witness this this person to witness this act of generosity like this moment is shared because he's also here with you um so it's it's just different dynamics with different people some people like going in big groups some people like going in small groups some people like doing on their own and and i realized how lucky i was getting this guy who who was just amazing and um yeah i'd love to do the next trip with him but um it, it, it might be that he's doing other things and, and it could be that just that the one trip that we did the first trip was, was that moment in time and we were very lucky to have shared it together. Yeah, absolutely. That's a special thing to have for sure. Yeah. So let's get into the, the vision, the inspiration. Um, you didn't start out as a cyclist. You didn't start out as a, a food connoisseur. So what is it that sparked this whole idea of, of going this, this distance? I mean, we're talking 20,000 kilometers, which is about 12 and a half thousand miles, mm. 501 days in 26 countries. That's a huge commitment. So what is it that kicked this whole thing off? <laughs> yeah, it is. Once you said the numbers, it's, it's quite <laughs> long. Um, well, me and Matt were, um, we were sitting in our local pub and a lot of the, uh, the planning and the subsequent trip revolves around pubs. Um, don't all great trips start with pubs. I, yeah, I know I how that is. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I think that's a, like an ironclad rule right. that, that that is just, that's fact. Um, and so we were sat in our, in our local pub in Cape town. And, um, so we both studied down there. He's from there. I'm from, from London. Um, but I went down to study there on my own when I was 19 and so we were sat in this pub and we were like, right, we've done four years of studying. I studied politics. 
history and film with a focus in my postgraduate on on conflict and conflict resolution in sub-Saharan Africa. So it's like, what are you actually going to do with that degree? Like, that's such a useless degree. <laughs> Unless you're going into like diplomacy or the foreign office, like, what are you actually going to do with that? Um, and so I was like, okay, what, do, what am I going to do? Or, or how am I not just going to have this this kind of accrued knowledge for four years about, uh, about this amazing continent, about African politics and history and film? Uh, how, how can I actually put this into practice? And rather than like, like write a, a dissertation on the dynamics of of a, of a certain country. Um, how can you actually go and visit these places and get a first hand account of what it's like from the from the ground up? And Matt did the same thing with economics, but also focusing on on African development. So we were like, well. Okay, we both want to take time off after after university. We both want to travel. We both kind of um, had done a bit of cycle touring before. We'd cycle around Greece together. Um, and so we knew what that way of travel kind of opened up for you and what it allowed. So we were both um, sat there with uh, after a few too many drinks and we were like, well, I've got a pub in England, which is my local. We're sat in another local here. How about we just ride between the two? And then we told one mate of our plans and he kind of looked at us and goes, you two never, like that's never going to happen. And then we told another mate and another mate and we woke up in the morning and we were just like, ah, I think we've, uh, I think we've told too many people to back out of it. Now. Which <laughs> I think it's also a really good thing, you know, like that sense of like accountability, just have an idea and tell so many people that you can't back out of it without losing face. So we were like, okay, um, how, and um, how are we actually going to make this this possible so we we're like well you know if, if we're going to cycle for a, an allotted amount of time and we and we said before the trip let's go for about 17 months how much money we're going to need uh, how many visas are we going to need uh, how many countries are we going to go through are those countries uh, safe are they uh, interesting what are the most interesting bits about this and then also like from a personal point of view I was like well if you're going to be on the road for 501 days as it turned out um, I wanted a project I love creating things like I love having a a tangible um, project at, at the end of, of something um, which sounds incredibly vague I know but I, I, I knew that I wanted to create um, something at the end of the trip that would that would last that would preserve the trip uh, and so I was like well what am actually am I, am I passionate about and I was like well I love photography and I love um, writing and I love design and I absolutely love uh, cooking and, and cooking has always been a passion of mine uh, my mum was a uh, she was a private chef um, kind of again at, at the age when I started the trip when she was about 20, 20 early 20s and so I was like well why don't you just combine something that will, that will, that will put all of these passions together um, and so I was like well let's let's write a cookbook let's write a cookbook but with an added dimension let's let's have the narrative of the journey as the backbone to this book and then let's have it as very much a, a character driven book let's not just look at food as sort of the sum of ingredients on a plate but let's look at the stories behind those plates of food let's look at the creators let's look at the farmers let's look at the artisans look at the the characters that welcomed us into their homes and let's look at the countries we went through and their and their food cultures and their traditions and their practices and um and their markets and their restaurants and and everything you know not just hopefully a bit more of a comprehensive look at of what food means to people kind of the length of the world and what are the commonalities about about food and how it brings people together um and so that was was my ambition at the start of the thing i'm not a i'm not a trained chef in the, in in any kind of um in any regard um but i have a love for food and i have a love for for telling stories and i i feel that 
the, the combination of the two could be could be pretty cool if, if done right. Um, and it's the most unifying thing we found out. And, and I had an inkling before that food is this great leveler. Um, it doesn't matter what culture you come across, what country, what creed or religion, like everyone puts food at the center of, of most communal gatherings. Um, and so having that as, as very much the lens through which to try and um, get a greater understanding of all these places that we went through and these people that we met um, was the focus that I wanted to very much kind of pin my trip on. Yeah, and that really does make a cool book. We had uh, Alan Carl on about this time last year, and I don't yeah, know if you yeah, heard. You heard from him or heard of him? He's yeah, he did a motorcycle with trip. Fork. It's forked, right? Forks, exactly. And uh, I had never, I'd never seen a book that had uh, uh, showcased food like that. And you know, after seeing his and after finding you, um, it's just a, it's a neat way to discover other parts of the world because you're right. You know, food really does unite all people from all societies. Yeah, I think so, and. I I think I don't know what it is like in the states, but in, in, it, certainly in the UK we have this this kind of insatiable um, desire for all things food related on TV and in books. You know, you can't move without look at this recipe and and this cooking show and stuff. But I, I find it slightly strange, and, and maybe it, I think it is definitely a um, a format that that is very popular in the in, in the states. Is this like competitive cooking? I don't care why. Like we're so obsessed <laughs> with having people put a plate in front of food in front of a judge, and that judge tells them what's wrong about the plate of food. It's like that's crazy. Like ninety nine percent of the world, if not more, you know, the vast majority of this of this world would would look at a show like that. And and go hang on that's not what food's all about like right. food isn't about dissecting you know a, a, a thing that's given to you and telling the person that gave it what they've done wrong like our our, our kind of our relationship with the way that food is documented is it, so skewed i think and so i wanted to, to try and create a book and i want to try and create more books that that actually take a very different view of, of how we should be kind of um, viewing and documenting food. And, and it should be more about um, issues of, of sustainability and farming practices and um, kind of cultural um, memes and traditions and, and how that then leads on to way that societies and, and communities are structured and, and how does that then you know, open up a world of conversations around a, a dinner table, around a, a communal bowl of food um, that is that is very much different to just looking at food as a finished article that then needs to be dissected and put apart and told what is right and wrong with it. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I just wanted to, to look at food in a, in a different light, I guess. And... Um, and put people at the people at the core of it rather than than the meat and vegetables um because i think that that's infinitely more interesting that actually you know most people ironically that that have cookbooks don't actually use them in the way that they're intended they don't use them as instructional books they like the pictures and they like the stories and they like that kind of vicarious um buying into what they could make well certainly certainly in the uk that's that's the case um and so i wanted to create a book that that had this underlying story that gave you more than just uh, recipes on a page right absolutely
Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection, as well as updates on all of their events. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. Get more information at 180TAC.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. So while taking this trip, there has to be just some amazing experiences that you guys came across. And I'm sure it's hard to pick just one, but how about a, a good story about you know a, a person that you met or an experience that you had on the way down that just really sticks with you? Yeah, um, I think there was one and, it, and it is, it's nicely food related. Um, and like you said, it, it, it's hard even looking back at it now and, and going through such like a cathartic process of writing a book, you know, and going, well, let's kind of break down all of these experiences and what really stands out. Like I couldn't, I could barely break down my favorite experience per country, let alone one, one as a whole. But there, there is one that does kind of stand out as, is hopefully kind of what I was just talking about now about about food and what it what it allows beyond just like this this one plate of food. Um, and so we we were in southern Malawi, and we just left the the kind of furthest well the main uh, metropolis of the south, which is uh, Blantyre, uh, Blantyre, and it's a and it's a and it's a kind of a, a medium sized um, town city. Uh, and we were heading further south, and we were. Um, immediately leaving Blantyre you drop down from the um from the the plateau and you descend right into the kind of the southern lowlands uh and so we'd have a day uh, of kind of really really nice cycling and cycling's always better when when gradient and gravity is on your side right so especially cycle touring with all that weight and so we'd kind of gone down this beautiful 25k hatchback um just descending down from this plateau and got down to the bottom and it was getting quite late at about five or six and the sun was going down and suddenly 
and for one of the only times of the whole trip we realized that we didn't have any food with us um, and there were no shops for miles around uh, and we were like well we've just come down 25k's we're not going back 25k's to go and get some food so let's make a plan and let's let's kind of um, chance it a little bit and so we looked to our right and uh, and off this off the main road was this kind of dirt track and we thought well if there's a dirt track and it's well worn the likelihood is that after a while, if we go down there, we'll come to some kind of, of community. So we went down this track, and after about uh, a couple of miles, we, we saw the first signs of, of, of kind of like a, a permanent settlement. And, um, and then we saw a, a few buildings, uh, kind of uh, very, very um, humble um, kind of shacks. And then we saw some kids kicking a football around, and then we saw a well, and then we saw a school. And then, to our great luck, we um, we saw the school teacher, this guy called Nelson, and, and Nelson came out and kind of outstretched his hand and welcomed us and um, and asked us what we were doing, and we we explained. And he said, "Okay, okay, what what we're going to do is we're going to put you up for, for the night." And he cleared one of the the school classrooms and uh, and then gave us a bucket of water each and said, uh, "Wash and <laughs> wash thoroughly because you smell really bad." <laughs> uh, and then what you're going to do is you're going to walk over the the schoolyard and you see that house over there. Um, I'm going to be your host for the evening so we're like okay fantastic so we so we cleaned up and then we went across and, and we were greeted by uh, nelson in his home and uh it was very again a very modest home uh, he had uh two rooms a front room and, and, and a back room uh and then at the at the back of the house there was a, a small sleeping quarters um uh separate from the from the main house uh and and he sat us around this little plastic um this plastic table on these little plastic chairs uh and he was like, right, now my wife is going to prepare you supper. And we're like, okay, amazing. Thank you very much. And um, after a day of, of cycling, and we'd probably been on the bikes for about uh, eight hours or so, you, you, you naturally, especially in, the, in that kind of heat, you lose a lot of fluids and you lose a lot of salt. So one of the things that we used to try and do at the end of, of every day of long cycling was kind of replenish those uh, those salt levels. Uh, and, and so uh, Nelson's wife brought out this... Um, this very very uh, bland um, but but very staple um, kind of uh, mealy meal starch um, porridge, like a really kind of stiff porridge, um, which is kind of eaten ubiquitously throughout Southern Africa. And um, and then she accompanied it with just some chopped tomatoes and uh, chopped avocado. And so we were given these big bowls and, and, and we started eating and I, and I turned to Nelson and I said, uh, Nelson, I'm really sorry. Have, have you got any salt that I can put on on, on my food? And at this point, his, his whole face just kind of like dropped and he became really, really apologetic. And he was and he, and he started saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We we don't have any salt. Um, the price of salt in Malawi has, has gone up this month and, and I haven't been able to afford to put any salt on, on, on my table for my family. And at that point, you kind of realize that this is more than just about salt. This is a guy who who can't put the most basic and for us the most common of commodities onto his table for his family. But at the, at the sight of two Western-looking, uh, kind of affluent-looking um, guys, the first thing in his mind to do was to open up his hand uh, and, and his house and, and to give what he had rather than kind of like lament what he didn't have. And so that, that kind of sentiment was, was with us throughout so much of the trip of people just opening up their homes at the sight of a stranger. And the stranger, for, for so many people in so many of these amazing parts of the world, um, is someone to kind of really, really cherish and to, and to celebrate and to very much um, kind of be hospitable towards. And I think that 
we might have lost that in the Western world a little bit is that we're kind of wary of, of what a stranger might take away rather than what we could gain collectively from, from a stranger. And so, you know, having, having no salt on his table, but giving what he did have and the food that he did have to, to share with us was, was kind of a real humbling experience. Um, and so that was certainly one story that, that, that kind of encapsulated so much of that sentiment that we were so luckily afforded throughout the whole of the trip. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I hear that story time and time again, and I, I yeah, just and I love yeah, that story. It's told by so many people right. that travel in this way, and and it's amazing how how uh, reassuring it is that, and, and that's a that's a commonality, you know. Like you can be guaranteed that anyone that's travelled in that part of the world or wherever it might be has something similar. It's it's incredible. Um, and I, and I also like I was thinking like the next day w- would this happen in England would this happen in London and, <laughs> right. and if it wouldn't like why like why wouldn't this happen why are we so fearful of why aren't we why don't we do the same thing um, and so yeah there's 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 parts of the world where where the kind of the value system is just is so skewed to what we have and and so nicely skewed especially for like a traveler right that that um that, that that's the kind of the experiences that you're craving um those kind of things and um and to be given them so readily and so frequently um yeah it's a, it's pretty much a, one of the greatest privileges of, of traveling in that kind of way yeah, absolutely. So in that situation, I mean, I haven't been in that situation personally. Do you feel guilty for for stepping inside? I mean, obviously they genuinely want you there and they're genuinely welcome, welcoming and, and hospitable. But yeah. do, as the traveler, as one being invited in, when salt is just is such a simple thing, you don't think anything mm. of it. You just go to the grocery store, you pick up some salt and you're good to go. But yeah. these people, that's a, there's a real monetary uh, value uh, and concern there for, for something so simple to us. Do you feel any guilt for, for being there in the first place? Um, I don't know. I think, I mean, guilt's such a loaded term, right? Um, and it's, and it's so complex that, I, I mean, in a situation like that, we were like, okay, listen, can we, can we give you some, can we give you some money right. uh, to go and get this, to, to, to at least reimburse you for the meal that we've had? And it was, and it was flatly denied, like not a chance of you giving me anything. Like I am your host. This doesn't, that's not how it works in this part of town. <laughs> it's like, almost offensive, I'm sure. People into their homes, offer them food and then, and then accept money. Like that's just not part of the culture. Um, and so you have to be respectful for, for their customs and their traditions. And like for, for us to, to insist on giving money is almost like a slight on his generosity. Like, um, and, and so you don't, you, you say your thanks and, and you're incredibly grateful. And, and you realize that this is, this is a man that, that, that takes great pride in being able to do this, um, in regard, um, of, of, of the resources that he might or might not have. Like that's a big part of how he's brought up and that's how he teaches his kids. And, uh, and you know, that's all built into the way that, that he lives his life. And so, no, I don't think it's guilt. I, I, I think it's, um, it's admiration for, for the way that this man can kind of act um, given, given his circumstances. Uh, and then you just try and, I guess you take some sort of lesson from it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing how, how with very seemingly, um, a few, uh, resources, people, people are willing to still give so, so much. Right. Uh, and that's, and that's the, that's the automatic, you know, that's the automatic, um, attitude. And then the manual is to give even more, um, 
and so it's like a precondition and it, and it's it, maybe it's a social thing maybe it's a, a in a lot of places it it's, it comes from from their religion in in the middle east we had it's a huge amount going through the islamic world and and there's a saying that you know in the islamic world of guests in the house god in the house and and the sense of having a stranger stay with you is one of the greatest honors that can be bestowed upon the guest rather than like the uh, I, I mean upon the host rather than the guest you know um and so yeah we we had some incredible experiences um throughout the islamic world um that you know made you think very much uh, uh, about your interpretation of what that whole religion is all about and the way that it's it's documented in kind of mainstream media and then when you get to to experience it firsthand you're like wow this is this is completely different to what i thought it would be um and there's so many incredible lessons that you can kind of take away from it yeah, absolutely. That's why I love doing these interviews in this show is because it, it really, talking to people like you, that you've been out there experiencing, it really opens up your 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 eyes to to what really goes on out there. And you know, these stories of people being so hospitable when they really don't have much at all. Yeah. Um, and then into the insight as to why it is they do it. Um, I think it really helps me and others to to really garner what is going on out there and what the the full world is really about yeah and i guess we're all we're, we're all guilty of of this in in, in different um degrees of, of thinking that we know th- how how places are you know like maybe we have a a preconception of what what life is like in sudan or, or what life is like in jordan or, or ethiopia and and we go away thinking that that certain realities we're gonna find uh, and and then to be blown away um, by kind of your your ignorance to actually how things are is is, is the biggest um, uh, the kind of the biggest thing that you can you can learn uh, through travel is is that you until you go and experience it firsthand then you, you know nothing uh, yeah. and, and so to to go away with preconceptions is something that you've got to try and it's so difficult to do because it's so easy to to fall into the trap and, and everyone does it of thinking that we know how how things are. Um, and yeah, I guess it, it comes through, through, through more and more, um, exposure to, to, to so many experiences that, that make you, um, kind of retrospectively look back and go, wow, how, how wrong was I? How naive was I? How, how kind of like stupid was I in thinking that, that I had any grasp of what things were like when, you know, actually I didn't know the true richness and the true diversity and, and, and so much uh, about these societies that make them so wonderful and colorful and, and different to, you know, different to, to the, to every other society that we kind of lump in this, um, and I did, I'm so guilty of it. I, did, I, I thought that much of the Islamic world would be all the same and, uh, and it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, you go through countries such as, as Jordan, Egypt and Sudan, three, you know, um, successive Islamic uh, countries all bordering, well, Jordan into Egypt and then Egypt into Sudan. And they couldn't be three vastly different interpretations of, of, of that religion. Um, and so the, the kind of the understanding and the and the depth within these regions um, is is amazing. You know, it's 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 so colourful and it's there's so much to learn um, from going there and experiencing it firsthand. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, to be able to experience that uh, firsthand or at a minimum vicariously through somebody else who, yeah, who sure. can report their travels and what they've learned is, is really, it really truly is a true gift to, to learn about that. Because uh, like you said, we, we often have a, a, uh, misconception, you know, about what things are like out there and, you know, what media reports. And then we hear somebody talk about it and you think, well, wait, wait a minute, that's not what I heard about that place. And that's not what I assumed about that place. And how, yeah. how great of an experience did this person have? I want to go do it myself. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's also the beauty of, of, um, traveling by bike, you know, um, uh, the, the, the bicycle is bar, bar kind of walking or, or sitting on a horse or donkey is the most, uh, vulnerable and exposed and, um, you know, unimpeding uh, in terms of everything that's surrounding you, the sights and the sounds and the smells, uh, the best way that you can travel. And it's slow travel, which is, which is great. And, um, and especially with, with bike, I mean, I haven't, I haven't done great, great walks. I don't know, but I imagine it's exactly the same that, that when you arrive into a community and, um, and they kind of ask you in broken English or in, or in any way of, of communicating where you've come from and you say to them, I've come from, you know, you start small, I've come from the, the previous village or the previous town. Like, they'll look at you like you're crazy. Like, nobody does that. Nobody cycles 200 kilometers from the town <laughs> here. And then if you go one step more and you go, actually, I came from the, the previous uh, region or the previous country, or I came the whole way from London, then, like, they're like, no, that's, that's impossible. And, and, and immediately that changes the way that they interact with you. Um, that, that suddenly it opens up this this chain of, of conversation that then leads on to so many more experiences and opportunities to open up, which is really, really cool. So I think that's one of the great virtues of, of cycle touring is um, is that every kilometre is earned and therefore every interaction with, with the next character that kind of comes into your story is, is really, really it's 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 earned in, in sweat and tears and and, and and at times blood and um and every kind of little experience that goes along the road and uh, and every hill that you climb and every you know mundane uh, kilometer that you 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 tick off all adds up it all collates into into kind of the richness of that way of travel um and it is it's dangerous as well and 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 I think that people really appreciate the fact that you've made a massive effort to kind of be with them in their little in their little world that you've come from this part of part of the world and from from miles if not tens of thousands of miles away and um and the appreciation that they show you is is incredible Hey, River Rats, you've heard nature photographer John Fielder discuss Colorado's free-flowing Yamper River on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Now get the 150 scenic and historic pictures behind the words. John's latest coffee table book guides you from its headwaters in the Flat Tops wilderness to the confluence with the Green River and Dinosaur National Monument. Visit johnfielder.com for more about the book or get your copy now at amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite independent Colorado book retailer. Once again, that book is Colorado's Yampa River, free-flowing and wild from the flat tops to the green. 
Phoenix Multisport is a sober, active community that supports individuals who are healing from substance use disorder by providing free programs to help them maintain their sobriety. A few of these programs include CrossFit, yoga, boxing, cycling, and rock climbing, and are offered to anyone who is 48 hours clean and sober. Phoenix Multisport provides programs in Colorado, Orange County, California, and Boston, Massachusetts. For more information on this nonprofit, go to www.phoenixmultisport.org. Together, we can help individuals rise from the ashes of their addiction and heal families. So let's talk about bad days. In yeah. 501 days, I'm sure 499 were fabulous. Right. <laughs> 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 However, uh, I'm sure there are a few bad times. Do you have a story about a time when things didn't go right or you just you really kind of bonked in the middle of this whole journey? How did that go? Yeah, they, I mean, there, there are loads of days. I mean... <laughs> I, I got run over a few times. I got I got very badly run over in Croatia. I got hit by a bus in Malawi, and and that wasn't too much fun. And but but in a weird kind of way, and we got ill, you know, like as you as you would um, traveling through so many different cultures and eating so many different foods and drinking really bad water, kind of when we'd never purify it or anything like that. And maybe that was our, our own mistake. But you know, if you're sitting around a, a communal um, pot of food and they're all passing around a, a mug of water, you're hardly going to get to your turn and go, "Sorry, lads, I'm just going to purify this before I have a swig." You know, <laughs> you go, oh, this water came straight from the Nile. These next few days are going to be horrible. But you know, it's all part of it. And uh, and maybe if we were much more sensible as individuals, we we would have we would have taken precautions to not drink straight from the Nile. Um, but it was it was of a moment, and we kind of went with it, and um, and so we got very ill. I put out my my knee very badly in the middle of the Egyptian desert, and then that was all part of part of the story. I had to then go uh, to a specialist in the south of of Egypt, and he told me that I couldn't cycle for six months. So I was like, well, that's kind of a bad news to be getting when you're trying to cycle the length of the world, and and because of that, the the whole trip had to vastly change. And in those six months, I went ahead to Khartoum, and I sourced this like decrepit old motorbike and sidecar. Um, That's it was where it came from. Yeah, I was going to ask yeah. you about that. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a check. So I, I was told, right, you can't cycle for six months. So I was like, okay, either, I, either that's a trip done. And, and this was a decision made in the, right in the, in the middle of the Egyptian desert, right? Trip done or find a solution and realize that it's not all that bad. Like the people that you're passing through on a daily basis are going through infinitely more challenging decisions than you going, right, do I end a trip or do I make a plan? And there's always plans to be made. So I went ahead to Khartoum and, I, and that's when I lived with this with a Sudanese family for, um, for a month. And they welcomed me in with open arms and complete strangers and said, how can we help you? And you're like, well, that's incredible. Uh, thank you. I need to try and 
source a vehicle that will that will keep me going for six months and so yeah i, I scoured the the streets of khartoum in kind of like 45 degree heat and, and 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 eventually found this decrepit old and it was a czechoslovakian and that's dating it you know czechoslovakia disbanded probably 25 years ago so i found this motorbike that hadn't been ridden for about 15 years that was housed under a tarpaulin in the back streets of Khartoum and I very stupidly just went yes I love that thing that's the only vehicle for me uh, and fell in love with this thing and then managed to get it all um, insured and another thing you can't I knew that I had to buy a vehicle in, in Khartoum but you cannot draw um, foreign currency in Sudan like the ATMs do not do it. So I had to smuggle in, in a dirty old sock, all of the finances that I could muster from Egypt over the border into Sudan and then found this vehicle. Um, the guy who I was staying with, a Sudanese man, was was just remarkable in his generosity. And and they took me around to kind of the licensing place and and introduced me to the head of cartoon traffic department. And we had a cup of tea and he, and he wrote me a kind of like an insurance contract and somehow managed to to get the vehicle in my name all of the paperwork was in arabic which is completely useless thing as nobody south of sudan speaks arabic but that was that um so i had a vehicle that was licensed in a language nobody spoke uh, <laughs> that was potentially not legally licensed in my name but kind of was dodgy insurance no um I'm not sure I should be saying all this. <laughs> Whatever, it's all done, right? <laughs> Riding motorbikes uh, and and a vehicle that 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 um, just simply didn't work mechanically, uh, and so I bought it. And um, the next day, realised that that both of the pistons had just gone, so needed a huge piston overhaul, uh, and so sat uh, on a on a on an oily uh, workshop floor. Um, in the in the searing heat of, of of a cartoon back street, while a one legged mechanic sat in the motor in the sidecar and, and fixed the engine, and I stayed with him for about three days while he taught me in in Arabic, which I don't understand how to fix and maintain engines. Uh, and then I had um, the joy of riding this vehicle across five borders all the way down to um, the bottom of Tanzania, and that was six months while Matt was cycling along, and I break down and fix it for days and then catch him up and and then break down again and, and catch him up and every single day I was on the road this thing broke down but in its breaking <laughs> down then introduced more and more characters to the story because uh, I had to fix it and I was like well I didn't know nothing about this let's try and find a local mechanic and again just people were just like right this <laughs> this is a problem that we'll solve together and again that sense of like communal um, pulling together and, and, and overcoming the odds uh, and it was great fun. It was just this this wildly characterful, um, eccentric vehicle that that should never have ever been driven out of Khartoum. It should never have been taken out from underneath, underneath that tarp. <laughs> like it just didn't work. But it was so much fun, and it's, it was called Frank, and and I loved it dearly. And um, and it, and it just it opened up a whole different side of of, of the trip. That yes, it, the the one dream of cycling that the length of of you know, London's Cape Town had gone, but if you, if I like, if I was like stood back and went, well, nobody's telling you to do this. Like you put yourself in this position, realize that it's not all that bad. And what you have to do is just carry on with this amazing vehicle. It's a different adventure in itself. Uh, and so I think it's, it's, it's just dealing with, with the cars that you have in front of you and, and making the most of it. And, um, and just realizing that, that adventures like that, um, 
are incredibly cyclical. They have high moments and they have low moments. And perversely, if you can kind of train yourself to really enjoy the low moments because you know they accentuate the high moments, uh, and that's what you want in a trip like that. You want contrast. You want the highs and lows um, because they give they give relative merit to, to both. And so if you can go, I know this is pretty awful at the moment, uh, but I know that there's a way out and I know that everyone that I'm meeting is helping me where they ha- absolutely have no idea who I am. I'm a complete stranger to them, but the first thing they do is how can I help? How can I help you? Um, yeah, it gives you kind of the, the confidence to, to keep going despite the fact that you might be like there's so many ways and reasons to maybe just call it call it off you're sick and you're ill and you got run over again and but but you realize that this is this is what events is all about right they're they're all about taking the rough with the smooth and and being learning to 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 enjoy both in equal measure or hopefully more of the good stuff but you know in equal measure that um that, that they're both needed for these kind of things yeah, I love that commonality of all these stories. You know, an adventure really is defined by the things that, that don't quite go right. And it's your ability to see past them. You know, you're in the, the thick of the moment and it really it really kinda sucks that you're you're dealing with this situation, but if you can see through that and see to the end in the backside and be able to tell that story and relive the experience, you know, as you survived it, um, that's that's really where it takes on this rich element. Uh, yeah, I think so. And, and putting stuff into perspective, you know, you, you, you're not a, and, and you pass so many people that have such like, extraordinary stories. And, and we were lucky to to spend some time in, in Rwanda in Kigali. And we worked at a school there, a little primary school. And, you know, you see these, these kids who are, who are seven, eight, nine years old, and they're the heads of their family because their, their father is absent and their mother has died and their grandmother is aging and ill. And these kids were three kilometers to school every single morning like that's a problem that's that's like a tough existence like what you're trying to do is a dream (laughs) you've got this dream trip that you're living um so no like once you once you realize how fortunate you are and 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 that, that that your problems are always solvable you know like you have access to an extraordinary array of, of resources at your fingertips you've got a support structure that will will you know give you all the confidence and reinsurance that you need it's a phone call away it's an email away like you don't have problems relatively like right. you can't overcome like and if you complain then then like seriously like just deal with it uh, <laughs> put a sock in it and get through it pal <laughs> yeah man. just like realize that it's all relative and right. um, and that you are living the dream trip uh, and it's all part of it and 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 so you know knowing real adversity and real hardship and and, and seeing that in, in in individuals and hearing their stories um yeah it kind of makes you very very um very humble and um and certainly you won't be complaining much after that. Right. Absolutely. Well, let's wrap up about going into the details of the book itself. Um, Spices to Spandex is the book. And as we've been talking about, it just it um, categorizes or what's the word I'm looking for? It showcases the various cuisines and culinary dishes around the, the world, or at least between London and Cape Town. Um, where is it people can find it? Where should they go to find more about you? 
So the best place to go is, is my website, so thenomadickitchen.com. Uh, and there should be, if I've designed it well enough, a fairly self-explanatory um, kind of route to an American market for the book. Uh, and so, yeah, I will um, I, I sign every book. If you can get an unsigned book, then they're worth infinitely more. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I tend to scribble something in the front of every book, yeah, and then I, I'll personally send it to, to you. Um, yeah, get get your hands on one that isn't being defaced by me, and, and you'll be onto a winner there. Um, so go onto the website, uh, thematickitchen.com, um, and all of the social media uh, kind of the, are around that handle, uh, and you'll and you'll kind of get a, an abreast of what, what what the book's all about, and then hopefully some some plans for, for future trips, which are kind of in the offing now, really, which is kind of an exciting prospect um, to be looking ahead and, and realizing that once you've done one, it's very hard not to want to do another. And yeah. so I'm in the process, slowly and surely, of looking at maps and and trying to find some some cool stories to be told and to be documented. Well, good deal. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. People can go uh, find you on Facebook and Twitter, YouTube and Instagram. And, uh, yeah. you know, being a photographer, you got some awesome pictures in here uh, just on your website. And I imagine the book is, is just full of the same thing. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good. Folks, check out show notes and uh, go in to uh, visit uh, Tom and Matt's journey at the nomadickitchen.com and all of the social media stuff. We'll put that in the show notes. So, Tom, it was awesome talking to you. I love to hear about stories like this. Um, you're you're not you know super adventurer sponsored by you know big camera companies and that kind of stuff. You're everyday guy that's out there doing the cool stuff that everybody wants to do. So I love I love uh, showcasing your stories where they illustrate that you too can get out there and do the same cool stuff. You just got to go over that that initial hump of of fear and and do it. Yeah, and then get drunk and tell all your friends you're doing it. <laughs> well, I love that about your story. I think you know the. There's no backing out. <laughs> yeah, we always think about what's the what's the the best thing to tell people to to get them over that initial hump. And here, you guys, you just got drunk, told a whole bunch of people, and, and you pretty much got to the point of no return. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's the way I'm, I make most of my decisions. <laughs> that's great. I love it. All right. Well, thanks for sharing with us. And uh, cheers, Travis. Thanks, man. We'll talk to you soon. All the best. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. College students, don't forget, we're still looking for a few campus ambassadors for the show. Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click the Contact Us button to find out how. And for you listeners, we're always looking to grow the show so we can continue to bring awesome guests and inspire you to get out there and have some fun. So be sure to do us a favor and subscribe to the show on iTunes, as well as make sure you're sharing us on Facebook and Twitter. So now it's time to get out and have some fun. 